This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. The good news is that the threat, as we saw it post 9-11, of command and control complex foreign-directed attacks is greatly diminished. The bad news is the conditions that made it possible for al-Qaeda to take root, that it made it possible for ISIS to expand and occupy the territory, to recruit and radicalize. All of those things still exist. Okay, cyber. Mm -hmm. Um, Give me your view of the threat. Yeah, the cyber threat is more diffuse than ever before in terms of the number and the types of actors. Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea um, in that order. There is uh, no longer a cybersecurity coordinator in the White House. But to not have one person who's waking up 24-7 with access to the president uh, focusing on it, I think that's a mistake. Lisa Monaco was President Obama's senior homeland security and counterterrorism advisor. She was responsible for advising the president on policy developments and crisis response related to terrorist attacks, cyber attacks, public health emergencies, and natural disasters. Currently, Lisa is a distinguished senior fellow at the School of Law at New York University. Prior to her White House appointment, Lisa served at various positions in the Department of Justice, including as Assistant Attorney General for National Security, as counsel and chief of staff to FBI Director Robert Mueller, and as an assistant U.S. attorney. I had a chance to sit down with Lisa to discuss a whole host of national security issues. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. A career at Raytheon is a career in innovation. Here, you'll advance technologies that make the world a safer place. Join our team today. Learn more at Raytheon.com slash careers. Lisa, welcome. It is great to have you on the show, our first of 2019. Good to be with you. Lisa, many of our listeners are young people who are interested in a career in national security. So I'd love to start by asking you some career questions. Sure. So college at Harvard, 
research associate at various entities, including the Senate Judiciary Committee, mm-hmm. law school at the University of Chicago, law clerk for the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, and then you start a career at the Justice Department. That's right. Why public service? You know, why not a high-paying job at a law firm? Why did you choose <laughs> DOJ? Well, I think it began really with my time working on the Hill at the Senate Judiciary Committee. For then, the committee was led by then-Chairman Joseph Biden. Yes, how about that? Um, and uh, this was before law school, so I didn't go in there thinking, oh, I want to go be a lawyer, I want to go be a prosecutor. But I did get the law and policy bug when I was there because I saw um, really committed folks who had actually left law firms uh, t- took a big pay cut to come to the Hill to work on big issues of public policy, things like the Violence Against Women Act that I was uh, privileged to work on and the crime bill and nominations to uh, the Supreme Court mm. and to the Justice Department. So I think I, I saw what you could do with a law degree spanning a whole bunch so of issues. So did you want to go to law school when you went there? Nope. No. You, so no. So this was something that grew out of that. That's right. I had been working at a uh, healthcare policy a consulting firm, and and then got this job on the Judiciary Committee staff. Uh, and that's really when I got exposed to the wide panoply of things that you could do with a law degree that are outside the private practice of law. So as a prosecutor, you worked on the Enron case, prosecuting Enron executives. What did you learn hmm. from that experience? I learned that as complex as the fraud was, and it was very complex accounting fraud, a case and it impacted um, an entire community in in Houston and and beyond. It was at the time in December 2001 when Enron went bankrupt. It was the largest bankruptcy ever in corporate America. As complex as the case was and putting it together, at bottom it was about greed uh, and it was about arrogance. The arrogance of the men who led uh, Enron and really through their lies to. Uh, the shareholder community and their investors uh, really ruined uh, a lot of people's lives. Those those two things, right, greed and arrogance, those cause a lot of problems in a they lot do. of different cases. Don't Nothing they? ends well when Nothing those two are well. present. Yeah. And then you end up working on national security, mm-hmm. right? So how did that transition go from prosecutor to a focus on national security? Yeah, it's interesting. I was Before I worked on Enron, I was a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C., which people may not know is the only U.S. Attorney's Office, the only federal prosecutor's office uh, around the country that also serves as the local prosecutor. And so the junior prosecutors in the office, the youngest ones, the newest ones, do basically local crime, um, small-scale shoplifting. Because um, it's Washington, D.C. Because it's Washington, D.C. and because of the uh, kind of peculiar governmental structure Mm -hmm. here. So the U.S. Attorney's Office does local crime as well as the federal crime. And so you have to kind of work your way up through Mm -hmm. the system. And so I got exposed early on to the criminal justice system, to, frankly, the power of a prosecutor and uh, how important it is to be an ethical uh, prosecutor. It's your job in the unique role of a prosecutor is to do the right thing. Your job isn't to get a conviction. It's to do justice. And um, when I was in the Justice Department, uh, I was um, I did not know Bob Mueller at the time, but his he had a kind of legendary reputation. And so when I was leaving the Enron task force, I actually had the opportunity to go work for him at the FBI. And this was during a time uh, pretty soon after 9-11, where he was engaged in an effort to basically transform 
the FBI after 9-11 into a national security organization focused on preventing the next terror attack, not solely on prosecuting kind of crimes that A lot of pressure on the Bureau at that time. Huge amounts of pressure to really transform itself, to create a much more robust intelligence capability, and to never let something like 9-11 happen again. And working with him there, I got immersed in the top threat of the time, which was, of course, the terrorism threat. And you were exposed to it because you were at the agency at the time. And because Director Mueller was so focused on transforming the FBI and sending the signal that counterterrorism was now its top priority, as well as counterintelligence and cyber threats, he spent basically, and those around him, spent the first three hours of every morning, usually started about 630 in the morning, focusing on the threats to the nation that had come in overnight. And so I just was um, consumed with that as, as he was. And that's really when I got, um, and I spent the next decade plus working on national security issues. Yeah. So I had, a, I had a similar experience because I had been an East Asian analyst mm. until I went to work for George Tenet in 1998, and I had I had not even heard of al-Qaeda before. And then I get to George Tenet's office, and it is all terrorism, right? Yeah. The entire focus of the office is terrorism, and I had a similar experience. It's interesting. Before I became a prosecutor, I was uh, – my first job after law school and my clerkship, I worked as counsel to the attorney general, who was at the time Janet Reno. And this was shortly after the Oklahoma City bombing. So it was – Obviously, the terror threat and and during my time working for Janet Reno was during the change in the millennium threat. Um, and we began to obviously see the coal bombing. So what was interesting is that early on in my career, Al-Qaeda was out there and it was uh, part of uh, what we were seeing quite obviously around 2000 to 2001. But I had no way of knowing how big a part of my life and what my focus would be in the in the mm-hmm. ensuing 10 to 15 years. I think for, for a lot of people, right? Yeah. Just one more career question, Lisa. You ran the National Security Division at the Department of Justice. What do the lawyers there do every day? Yeah. So the National Security Division of the Department of Justice is one of the reforms post 9-11 that it was created after 9-11 within the Justice Department to bring the lawyers who focus on intelligence matters and who represent the intelligence community before the FISA court and who work on uh, national-level counterterrorism and espionage and cyber prosecutions from nation-state cyber uh, threat actors, they bring all those prosecutors together with the intelligence side of the house, so to speak. So everyone knows the phrase, before 9-11, the failure to, quote, connect the dots. Mm -hmm. And it was because of a perception that the intelligence... Uh, should not talk to the criminal prosecutors. And that uh, was completely blown up after 9-11, and and we said we needed to share that information across that divide. And so the National Security Division was really created to integrate the lawyers and prosecutors and intelligence uh, analysts and to bring that together under one roof, quite literally, in the Justice Department. And, and, and how do the prosecutors in the National Security Division lash up to the prosecutors in U.S. Attorney's offices? Yeah. How does that work? So it's interesting about the Justice Department is um, the U.S. Attorney's offices uh, around the country, some 94 of them, are really the people who bring the cases in the uh, around the country. Uh, but the national security cases, again, this is a reform after 9-11, there was a view after 9-11 that the national security cases that were brought around the country needed to be done from a national perspective. There needed to be visibility uh, across the nation as to what was going on. And so 
uh, terrorism cases, espionage cases, nation state cyber cases. Those are the only cases in the Justice Department that actually have to be signed off on back by the assistant attorney general for national security, the job I had, so that there is visibility and there's a there's a national comprehensive approach to these issues. So what my lawyers would do in the in the national security division is work hand in glove with the prosecutors in uh, the U.S. attorney's offices around the country and as a team uh, bring those cases. Now I go back to something you mentioned earlier, with, which is this ethic, right, of prosecutors mm-hmm. to get to justice, right, not to a conviction. How do you make sure that happens, right? How do you make sure that you don't drift towards how many notches can I get on my belt? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it ought to be drummed into you very early on. Um, as it was uh, to me and to my colleagues when we were trained, you learn to uh, focus on doing justice, to present your ethics and the rules are designed to have you basically present your case warts and all to the judge. You're duty-bound and ethically bound to present the evidence that is counter to your case called in many instances called Brady material. Um, And there is a long line of Supreme Court cases and rules of criminal procedure that require Mm. prosecutors to present that evidence and to share that with the defense. Now, which is not to say there aren't healthy disagreements of what falls in that bucket, but prosecutors are trained to abide by those rules and judges, the good judges, hold them to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just I'm just making a comparison in my mind here to intelligence analysts, yeah. right, who has this ethic of being objective, yeah. right, in their analysis and politics and policy, you know, be damned sort of thing. Yep. And I'm just sitting here thinking it might be healthy if analysts had to tell policymakers, mm-hmm. here's the evidence I have that that, that actually doesn't fit right. with my argument, right? Well, you and I dealt with some of that, right? I mean, we'd sit around the uh, situation room table and I would regularly get assessments from the agency and the rest of the intelligence community say, you know, our assessment is X, but the reason it's not higher is because we have this other information, right, which right. either runs counter confidence to it or, and, yes. you, and you apply confidence levels. And then the other thing I think that is similar in the intelligence community is this notion of red team analysis, right? Say, uh, assign a group of analysts to take another view really, and to challenge right. the assumptions that right. have come out in the right. piece. And right. I think there's a there's a very, uh, there's something very healthy about that. It aids, I know it aided me as a policymaker when we were wrestling with very tough, uh, tough issues. You know, I, I actually, I've uh, made the same comparison in my head, too, as I um, proceeded in my career and focused more and more on intelligence issues and, and literally left being a lawyer when I went to the White House, mm-hmm. right? Because when I was at the White House, I was not... You're a policymaker. Uh, I was a policymaker, didn't have any uh, role as a lawyer. I, you can't help when you're trained that way, as I know you know as an intelligence analyst. You can't help but see things through those lenses. But I saw a lot of parallels. And I actually think the FBI, obviously where I was privileged to, to serve a number of years, has a similar role mm-hmm. um, as, you know, as you pointed out in the intelligence community in the sense of speaking truth to power, being clear about what the facts are, being guided by the facts. Mm-hmm. You know, the intelligence community makes its assessment based on facts only, doesn't let politics creep in. Yep. Uh, and the same, it's the same ethos. Yeah, yeah. Okay, some policy issues, Lisa. Mm-hmm. First, terrorism. Yep. So where do you think we are today in terms of the terrorism threat? How do you think about that? So 
I see it as a little bit of a good news, bad news story, which is a bit surprising, actually, for you and I to be sitting here looking at each other and be able to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, the good news is that the threat, as we saw it post 9-11, of command and control complex foreign directed attacks is greatly diminished. And that is owing to the tremendous professionalism and hard work across multiple administrations going back now 17, 18 years. So we have Both never... in terms of defending the homeland mm-hmm. and then also when somebody has develops the capability to reach out and harm us, we take the fight to them. That's exactly right. So and both offense and defense. And that has been a that's a story of continuity mm-hmm. across administrations to up into including uh, the one we're in right now. Uh, and that's good, right? We have not had a foreign uh, an att- a successful attack from a foreign terrorist organization on this country since 9/11. Um, and ISIS, the you know kind of most recent incarnation of, of foreign uh, terrorist organizations that we've been most concerned about, has been rolled back substantially. Does not occupy the land that it did, which was its one of its distinguishing factors. So all of that is good news and, you know, lots of reasons for that that we can go into. The bad news is that the conditions that made it possible for al-Qaeda to take root, that it made it possible for ISIS to expand and occupy the territory to, to uh, recruit and radicalize, all of those things still exist in uh, the Middle East and other regions. And those things are not going away. In right. fact, they're getting worse right. if you look at places like Yemen. Right. Uh, and if you look at the, um, you know, the increasing tensions in the Gulf and right. the Sunni Shia. What's left um, in Syria, for example. What's left in Syria, exactly. I mean, so that story is not good, and I think it's getting worse. Uh, and then here at home, the sources are political divisions, the ability for individuals to radicalize online, whether it's ISIS-inspired, whether it's far-right ideology, whether it's far-left ideology, all of those um, conditions also still exist and I think also are getting worse. Yeah, and, in fact, you wrote with Ken Weinstein, who, mm-hmm. who um, had your job in the Bush administration, yep. an op-ed, and the title was, We've Declared War on Foreign Terrorism, Why Not Do the Same on Domestic Terrorism? What yeah. was that? What was that all about? So, um, actually, we didn't choose the title, but the, the point of the piece... People should know that op-ed writers do not choose the title. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the point of the piece, and Ken and I felt it was important for us both to say it, not only because we both uh, agree with it, but because uh, I think it's important now more than ever that there be bipartisan voices on these issues. The point of the piece was to say, and this happened, we wrote this piece after the horrific week of uh, attempted pipe bombs, against critics of the president, the uh, horrific uh, slaughter in the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh and the killing uh, of two individuals in Kansas. The point of the piece was to say that the domestic terrorist issues, and by that I mean terrorism visited upon us by individuals here at home with no foreign terrorist nexus who are radicalized um, by uh, ideologies outside of Uh, jihadist violence, that we are not equipped today to deal with those. And we're not focused, we're not appropriately focusing on it as a government. Uh, And indeed, what we've seen is a diminution in focus, both on the terrorist issue uh, in its domestic manifestations and in work with communities, for instance, Mm. that could help us combat it. Yeah. And we just have to remember the Oklahoma City bomber to get an idea of how much damage can be done. Mm-hmm. You talked about the continuity in counterterrorism policy. Mm-hmm. Are there things that 
this administration is doing that concerns you on the terrorism front? Mm-hmm. There are. Um, so I'll return to the theme we just had, which is one is focus, right? So the, the role that I had as Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor and as assistant to the president with direct and immediate access to the president. I met with the president every morning on these and other issues. Uh, and same, you could walk into the Oval Office anytime you wanted if you needed to see him. I could and did. Uh, and unfortunately, I usually had bad news, which is why, as you know, he um, had a nickname for me, which was Dr. Doom. <laughs> but it was very important, particularly after 9-11, particularly as the threats uh, against our homeland have expanded beyond uh, terrorist threats to cyber threats to um, pandemic disease and a whole panoply of issues. So that role that I occupied, that Ken Weinstein had, that John Brennan had, that Fran Townsend had, was because the president from George W. Bush through Barack Obama knew that we needed and they needed one person who woke up every day focused 24-7 on this issue. Uh, Today, that person does not exist. Uh, that role has unfortunately been uh, kind of downgraded. Um, and I think that's, that's a problem because I know I was pretty busy, as were my predecessors. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder about the focus mm-hmm. in the White House on these issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, if you look at the counterterrorism strategy that the administration has produced, I think you and I could have written that strategy. There was um, a, a lot of continuity in themes. It talked about keeping pressure on safe havens where terrorists take root. It talked about working in partnership with other governments. Uh, It talked about hate-fueled ideologies beyond Islamic extremism. But there's a real mismatch with that strategy and what we're seeing in terms of rhetoric and actions. So I talked about the diminished focus in the White House. Things like the travel ban are, I think, run directly counter to things that are in that national strategy. Um, It sends an isolating message uh, and fuels the ISIS recruiting when it comes to sending a message that we don't want to work. Allows them to say, see, they're against us. It's exactly right. I mean, they, as you know, they recruit people, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, others recruit based on a theory that there's a clash of civilizations, that the West and America in particular is aligned against all of Islam. And so we feed that narrative when we do things like the travel ban, when we criticize our NATO allies and when we uh, talk about and retreat from multilateral organizations and agreements. All of that, I think, isolates us from our partnerships that are so, so critical to being able to take the fight to the terrorists uh, abroad before they come here and to work with communities here who are so vital to our being able to uh, defend against inspired attacks here at home. In terms of the actions that the Obama administration took against terrorists when we couldn't capture them, mm-hmm. so the, the actions to remove them from the battlefield, we had the highest standard possible with regard to collateral damage. Right? There was no higher standard you could get to. Nope. This administration says that they have not lowered that standard, but there seems to me to be more collateral damage. Um, What's your sense? That's what I'm reading. Um, I obviously don't um, have access to the intelligence anymore, but that tracks with what I've read in terms of uh, the non-governmental organizations that track these issues. I think, interestingly, you know, Michael, as you know, in the last couple of years of the Obama administration, we tried to put a lot more transparency around the use of uh, force 
in conflict zones and in areas outside of what we called hot battlefields and in the use of terrorism strikes. And uh, we made a decision to publish those numbers, including the numbers of civilian deaths that were a result of those efforts, and uh, issued an executive order to require the national security community to publish those numbers every year. To my mind, that hasn't continued. Yeah, and, and, and President Obama's logic, as I remember it, um, you'll know better than I, was that, look, this is something that we're going to have to do for a long time. Yep. And we're going to need domestic acceptance of it, domestic support for it, and at least international acquiescence, yep. right, if not more. And so we've got to be able to talk about this more, our successes and our failures. That's exactly right. Because, look, there's a lot of discussion about transparency and the reasons for it and the, and the, the challenges between striking the balance between secrecy and security. Um, but the reality is transparency is important for the legitimacy of the actions that we take as a government, as a national security community. And if we don't have um, the support and the confidence of the American people that we're doing these things in good faith and that we address mistakes where we make them, we won't retain that confidence and we won't have legitimacy. And we are going to need to be able to use these tools for a long time to right. come. Right. And the extent we don't, we also hand a, um, a propaganda victory. To Absolutely. The, and we've seen them. The we've seen our adversaries use that against us. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Lisa Monaco. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. Okay, cyber. Mm -hmm. um, give me your view of the threat. Yeah. The threat, I think, is one, I've described it this way. It, the cyber threat is more diffuse than ever before in terms of the number and the types of actors. I mean, nation states, non-state actors, criminals and hacktivists, right? Cyber actors who just want to make a political point. So it's more diffuse than ever before. It is more sophisticated than ever before. And you think about the tools those actors are using, things like ransomware, uh, denial of service attacks, destructive attacks like we saw in uh, the Saudi Aramco attack, the Sands Casino attack, the Sony attack. And it is more dangerous than ever before. It's more dangerous because those tools are having destructive effect. They're also attacking the very um, kind of things that undergird our democracy, like our elections. And the potential to be more destructive when you think about how expansive the target area is or the attack surface is, when you think about the Internet of Things mm -hmm. and how vulnerable we mm -hmm. all are. So the threat, I think of it uh, in those three ways and if I think about the most dangerous actors, it is, as it was, I believe, when I left the government, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea, right. um, in that order. Yeah. And, then, and then some of the criminal groups who take advantage of being in those countries 
where somebody works for Acting the government proxies, during the yeah. day and they work for a criminal organization at night bringing the same skills to the table. And we saw that, actually. We saw that in – I was involved in – when I was head of the National Security Division, we began the investigation against the five members of the People's Liberation Army in China who ultimately were indicted in 2014. Right. Uh, for cyber-enabled economic espionage directed by the Chinese right. government. And some of those actors were basically doing it um, uh, in their off hours, too. So where is U.S. government policy with regard to cyber at the moment? And then where does it need to be, yeah. right? And how far away are we from where it needs to be? So I think it's it's similar in the to how I described the counterterrorism um, policy, which is you can see lots of points of continuity, I think, if you look at kind of the doctrine here, um, or what is the stated policy. Lots of focus, I think, on working with the private sector. That's good, on shoring up our defenses. Lots of work on trying to set standards for Internet of uh, Things devices, etc. But there also, I think, has been some very dangerous departures. Things like, again, a lack of focus. There is uh, no longer a cybersecurity coordinator in the White House. One there, was, per- there was, and he's... There was a, a long-time career official named Rob Joyce, who's an expert at the National Security Agency, who's uh, gone back there. He was, I think, a tremendous uh, force and good resource as cybersecurity coordinator in the White House. So I think it doesn't make sense to not have that point of focus in the White House. I mean, think of it this way. In 2012, the director of national intelligence said for the first time, that the cyber threat is the top threat facing our nation. It was the first time since 9-11 that it had uh, leaped leaped, uh, ahead of terrorism. It has occupied that top spot in the threat list ever since. And so to not have one person who's waking up 24-7 with access to the president uh, focusing on it, I think that's a mistake. I think that the focus on bilateral to the exclusion of multilateral agreements in Uh, the cyber realm to try and establish norms of behavior uh, is uh, something that is a departure from uh, past approaches and past administrations. Again, crossing the political spectrum. This isn't, and it shouldn't be, I should say, Michael, this should not be a partisan issue. Mm -hmm. Um, We really... And why is multilateral better for... Help people think about that. It's so it's not exclusively so, right? I mean, obviously, we, we had President Xi and President Obama engaged in a uh, very healthy um, debates and uh, arrived at uh, an agreement that has now, I think, fallen by the wayside. But So there's a place for bilateral agreements. But if we do not work, if the U.S. is not leading and if the president is not leading the international community to come together to say, here's a set of activities that are acceptable in cyberspace and here's what we as an international community believe ought to be outside the bounds – we can't help. We can't hope, rather, to isolate bad actors. Right. Right. You have to be isolating them from something, right, right, and that right. means an international right, community. Right. Right. How do you think about the offensive use of cyber for defensive purposes? So I think it has a place, um, but I think we have to be very careful in this. Which is to say, um, you know, there's a lot of debate about. Um, you know, I, I used to get the question in. Uh, in response to the Sony hack, well, why didn't we zap them back? And that's the level of the question. We get mm-hmm. zap them back, right? One, you have to figure out how effective are you going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, to turn out the lights by cyber means in North Korea is 
There aren't any lights to begin with. There aren't any <laughs> lights to begin with. And it would, you know, not exactly have a tremendous effect yeah. to escalate a um, series of cyber actions with uh, an adversary where, you, where you're not quite sure where you might be more vulnerable, right. which, you know, the United States is the most connected nation, uh, ironically, is also the most vulnerable right. to cyber attacks. So I think you have to be Glass very house. careful. Glass yeah, house argument. Exactly right. And so you have to be very careful about that, which is not to say that um, we don't have tremendous capabilities. We do. And we can and should use those capabilities, but we have to do it in the context of understanding uh, what the impacts are. And that's something, you know, that you and I would rely on the intelligence community for when we were in government to really set out that full context to try and understand. Um, Lisa, you've been absolutely terrific with your time. I wanted to ask you two more questions. I'm sure that one of the things that I mentioned in the intro and then you mentioned later caught people's attention, which is the fact that you worked for Bob Mueller Mm -hmm. very closely for a period of time when he was director of the FBI. And with all of the politics swirling around the investigation that he's leading, I was hoping you could just give us a sense of Bob Mueller, the man, who he is, you know, how he thinks, how he works, just walk us through who Bob Mueller is. Sure. Uh, first of all, it was a tremendous privilege to be able to work with him, uh, both when I was chief of staff at the FBI for three years and then in the other uh, jobs that you mentioned that I've had. I continued to work with him um, uh, until he until he left government in 2013. I think by now folks know he was a longtime career prosecutor, a uh, Republican but a Marine and prosecutor, uh, first and foremost. He is somebody who uh, served his country repeatedly. He uh, served in Vietnam. He volunteered to go when he didn't have to, earned a number of commendations for doing so, came back, was a prosecutor for many, many years, led the FBI. Um, uh, little known fact, he led it for 10 years, and then um, the Congress passed a statute, a special statute, 98 to 0, uh, to have him serve for an additional two years. He is somebody who is a product of the institutions that I think have formed him most. One is the Marines, where he had an ethic of service and um, sacrifice, sacrifice, tremendous service and sacrifice. And the other is the Department of Justice and the rule of law and doing the right thing being guided by the facts, come hell or high water. Look, he is a he is a tough, relentless prosecutor, but he is somebody who doesn't shade, does not. His ethos, I think, is uh, truth and integrity. He doesn't shade. He doesn't embellish. It's about the work, uh, first and foremost. And then second, and I don't want to embarrass you here, but when people make lists of future FBI directors, your <laughs> name shows up on it. And with that in mind, I'm wondering how you think about how the Bureau has become a political football in the last two years and um, what that must mean for the people who work there. I think that uh, it's tremendously unfortunate that it has become drawn into politics. Uh, It is a tremendously powerful institution, but it is one that needs to retain the confidence and legitimacy in the work that it does, uh, precisely because it is so powerful. Um, I think that the men and women who work there do not like to be drawn into the politics um, and will keep their head down uh, and continue to do uh, the work uh, in front of them, whether it's terrorism investigations, whether it's uh, 
white-collar fraud investigations, whether it's national security, cyber uh, investigations, they will continue to do that work. But the, the danger of the politicization of this and of the attacks on the FBI is that the people uh, in the United States lose confidence, right? And that has a direct impact. I mean, people talk a lot about very abstract concepts of norms and institutions. But what does that mean? What it means is FBI agents go into court every day, raise their right hand and swear to tell the truth and rely on juries to believe them. The FBI relies Mm -hmm. on um, families of victims to come forward to work with them, to help them uh, solve crimes, to help them prevent uh, terrorist threats, you name it. We rely on the citizenry to have faith in the job that institutions like the FBI do. And if we don't have faith and confidence in those institutions and the people who operate in them, then we really, we hurt our democracy and we hurt our safety. And we're going to pay a cost. Yeah. Lisa, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. That was Lisa Monaco. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.